This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and anyone interested in history, featuring the minds and voices of the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to 15 Minute History. I'm Alina Scott, a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at UT Austin. And after a year, we are back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So today we are talking about environmental justice and indigenous history with Professor Dina Gilio Whitaker. Professor Gilio Whitaker is a citizen of the Colville Confederated Tribes and a lecturer of American Indian Studies at California State University, San Marcos and an independent consultant and educator in the environmental justice and police planning. At CSUSM, she teaches courses on environmentalism and American Indians, traditional ecological knowledge, religion and philosophy, native women's activism, American Indians in sports and decolonization. She works within the field of critical sports studies, examining the intersections of indigeneity and the sport of surfing. She has contributed to numerous online outlets and authored several books, Her latest book, As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock, was published in 2019. Professor Julia Whitaker, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Alina. It's good to be here with you. I'm super excited for this conversation um, because I'm fascinated by your work. I loved your book. So I kind of want to start out by talking about your incredible career and all of the things that you have done. So you've been a journalist, a public intellectual, a scholar, an educator. And so I wonder how you chose this path or if this path chose you. But yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. I, you know, maybe the path chose me and maybe it's a combination of both. I'm not sure. And that's only my life in the last 15 years. Because when I came to this work, I came to this work fairly late in life, like when I was in my 40s and I'm in my 60s now. And before that, I was an artist. I'd been in the Indian art world for 10, 15 years. And then there was a whole other previous life before that. So it's all, you know, like the building blocks of my life, like I guess you could say. But yeah, I went back to school late in life at the age of 47. That's when I um, got really clear about what I wanted out of college. And so I went into American Indian Studies and then American Studies for grad school. And my life kind of got a change in direction while I was in grad school in at the University of New Mexico. And I ended up coming back to Southern California, where I was born and raised, and landing here in San Clemente, which is the epicenter of uh, the surf world in California, and also the home of the village of Ponhe, which is traditional unceded territory of the Ahashiman Nation, one annual band of Mission Indians. And so all of these things converge in these very interesting ways and unpredictable ways that I really couldn't have foreseen taking the direction that it did. But what it meant was I decided not to stay in school for a a PhD. That was the plan. But um, I decided not to because of a variety of different reasons. And so after I finished my master's program, here I was living in the surf town with this education in a place that didn't have, there was no market for somebody like me. So I had to, I had to forge a path in ways that would be workable for me. And so I had already been a writer and I had actually gone back to school because I'd been sort of like what we used to in those days call a citizen journalist or grassroots journalist. 
And so I went back to school to get some credentials um, as a writer. And so now I'm at a school with a couple of degrees and I go back into wanting to resume my writing career. And so by now everything is, it's, everything's online. And, um, and so I had to learn how to write in an online environment. And so I did that in a whole bunch of different ways. I just, I wrote for content mills. I wrote for everything I possibly could to get my foot in the door. And at the same time, I was working for an organization called the Center for World Indigenous Studies as a research assistant, and then later the policy director. So um, I did that for six years. So I was like literally cobbling together a path for myself or a career for myself in these very sort of creative ways. And it was because of that and my online journalism writing for Indian Country Today that Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz had contacted me and asked me to co-write the myths book with her. And so getting a foot in the door of the publishing world that way was like like mana from heaven. Like it was like an incredible gift to be asked to co-write a book with somebody of her stature was like pretty unusual. So that just opened up all kinds of other doors for me. And then I was recruited by Jolie Proudfit at Cal State San Marcos, where I'm teaching now to come teach as a lecturer. So which was what I wanted to do all along. I just wanted to teach and write. So it all came together, but I had to really make it happen and start at the bottom. I you know, had to start at the very bottom and just make something that was workable for me. And, and it's sort of paying off in the long run. It's paying off because I get to do it all. I get to teach, I get to write and get paid to write. And, um, and now have you know, a public platform where I have the possibility to influence what's going on in various different worlds around native activism and policy and all that stuff. So, you know, it, I guess it's a lesson in stick with it and just work really hard and, you know, stick with your vision, but you have to have that vision first of, of what you want. Wow. Um, I mean, that's an incredible journey. And I definitely should add artist to the, your bio that we're going to have on the website. So I was really fascinated by your most recent book, As Long as Grass Grows. In your book, it is a history of indigenous resistance and activism as it relates to environmental justice. So to kind of start off the conversation for our listeners, how would you define environmental justice and environmental justice as it directly relates to indigenous people? Environmental justice is um, is is sort of an umbrella term that describes a range of things, like it's a discourse that also includes, you know, activism, policy, law, and theory in the academic realm. And it describes processes of risk and harm to communities that are disproportionately um, exposed to risk and harm through environmental processes. So it generally relates to ethnic minority communities and also low-income communities. But what I discovered when I was in school studying environmental justice I discovered that, um, which is why I wrote the book, I discovered that all of the way that environmental justice is approached relative to American Indians was really, it wasn't responsive and appropriate for American Indian people, people who are colonized people and who have been on the land here for thousands of years and had a very different relationship to the land and also had a very different political relationship to the state. 
meaning the United States. And so none of that stuff gets factored in into the law and policy realms of environmental justice. So when you look at it through the lens of settler colonialism and indigeneity, then it has to turn into a completely different conversation. And that's what isn't in place in the American system. And so I felt like I had to write the book to make all that really obvious and and visible. So kind of on that topic, your book starts with this vivid description of maybe the most well-known protest by Indigenous people in recent years, Standing Rock and the No Dapple Movement. While it's not the only example of Indigenous resistance, it was incredibly significant. So can you talk about the significance of that movement specifically and how it might be connected to other movements in Indigenous history? Yeah, and um, and the really good point about that is that it is connected to these um, prior movements. And I think that you're right, that it is the most significant movement. If we can call it that, I don't know if we can call it a movement. I actually had this conversation with Madonna Thunderhawk while I was at Standing Rock. That time, it was the first time I'd ever met her. And we were talking about this. And she actually said to me, she said, I don't think this is really a movement. She said, I would call it a happening or an event but not so much a movement. And this is somebody who's been in, you know, she was, you know, an original person in the red power movement. So you now we think about the red power era and that really being a movement, you know, because it comes out of this, this era of civil rights activism of ethnic nationalists for liberation movements of the 1960s and 1970s. So you know, we can identify those as actual social movements, but standing rock was really more of an event that is perhaps part of a larger movement for indigenous justice, really, you know, and we, we can use the term liberation even to describe that. But Standing Rock comes on the heels of the Idle No More movement, right? So Idle No More happens in 2012, starting in Canada, and then spreading to the US. Of course, that came right after on the heels of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And the Occupy Wall Street movement was Native people broke with that movement because the problems of, um, you know, using the term occupying, you know, occupying lands. And the, the question came up like, well, whose lands are you occupying, right? I mean, isn't this already occupied land, you know, from an Indigenous perspective? And when Native people brought up those conversations in some of these um, Occupy spaces, especially in the Bay Area and San Francisco, they didn't get it. Like the communications broke down and then it was like just the split happened. So it was pretty much of a failure from a, a native perspective. Like these people don't get like settler colonialism and the U.S. as a site of ongoing, you know, occupation of indigenous lands. And so, so, you know, the, the, the early 20th century so far is really an interesting period to look at, at this um, continuum of activism for native people, but that continuum really goes back. I mean, we could take it back to a century and that's the way that I write about it in the book. Um, So we can connect it, you know, in recent history to the red power movement Uh, with the American Indian movement and the activism of late sixties, you know, beginning with, you know, we can look at the Alcatraz Island occupation from 1969 to 1971 as 
being, you know, one of these watershed moments where Native people are coming together and fighting and coming visible for the first time, really, in history. Um, That's what's so unusual about it. You know, Native people had been so completely invisibilized the half century prior to that and all the time before that even. But this is the first time in history that Native people are getting media attention. And it's on the evening news every night. It's this flashpoint. And people are like, wow, you know, I had no idea the Indians are even still alive. And and look what they're doing. They're, you know, occupying this land and, you know, saying they want their rights and their treaties honored. And so that starts this period of activism in the early 1970s that that uh, we can, uh, you know, look at other other actions that happened. There's the Trail of Broken Treaties, which is a caravan that begins from the West and they drive all the way across the country to Washington, D.C., and hundreds of young Native people take over the BIA building and occupy the building for a week. And that's another thing that gets all this media attention. Then, you know, the following year, it's the Wounded Knee standoff, a 71-day armed standoff with the FBI. And there, here we have it again. It's another, you know, very high profile event. Like, wow, the Indians are, you know, like they've taken up arms and they're fighting and they're shooting at, you know, they're shooting back and forth with the FBI. So that's sort of like a, that, that period of activism. But then we can look back even to the early, early 20th century to when native people start officially organizing as native people in this organization called the Society for American Indians. And, or SAI. And SAI is the first advocacy or native rights organization for native rights by native people. There had been other organizations prior to that, like, you know, sort of friends of the Indian organizations, but this is the first one that's actually run by native people. And so that lasts from 1911 to 1923. And they're organizing around things like fighting for what well, this is a dur- during a time it's still the Dawes Act it's still assimilation policy boarding schools kids are still being sent off to these government run church run boarding schools and their lands are being taken away it's allotment it's the allotment years native lands are being allotted through these um, this privatization program of private property ownership and all these you know lands these reservation lands are being deemed surplus lands and you know, in these years, like 90 million acres of reserved treaty lands get legally stolen by the federal government in this scheme. And so they're fighting against that. And they're, and at the same time, their religions have been banned. Like the 1980, uh, 1883 religious, Indian Religious Crimes Code is passed. And Native people are going to jail for practicing their religions. We're the only people in the United States, not to have freedom of religion. This is huge. So, um, so all of that's going on. And not only that, but we've had World War One. Native people are going off to fight in World War One, and they they don't even have citizenship. So they're fighting for this country they're not citizens of, and not that they thought that being a citizen was like the height of rights or anything. It wasn't about that, but. There were some who believed that having citizenship would give them more power to fight for their rights as Native people. Not everybody agreed with that, especially the Iroquois in 
Haudenosaunee people, especially the women, because women in Haudenosaunee cultures had far more rights than American, white American women did. And so they looked and they were like, this is before white women had the right to vote. And so Iroquois women are looking like, why, why would we want that? This is going to be a downgrade for us in our power as women in our own societies. Why do we want to join a society that doesn't even allow us the right to have a say in the political system? So it was an interesting time, but you know, it was all part of this very convoluted and confusing kind of struggle for survival and struggle to to exist as people with government. So yeah, if we look at the 20th century, like or the last century, as this continuum of Native people fighting for the right to exist, that that's really the appropriate way to look at it. And I do think that it has continued since Standing Rock. It's not like, you know, when people left the camp, it kind of ended. I think um, it's become a lot more visible to a lot of people since Standing Rock, but there's also these movements or these happenings in, you know, indigenous communities in Canada, um, in South America. And, and I think it's easier for a lot of people now, at least, to, to see them as connected somehow. Absolutely. But they're definitely not isolated. Oh, no, 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 no. Especially when you contextualize it within the facts, the fact that as the United Nations has, has acknowledged, what is that fact about the you know, biodiversity and the 80% of all the lands that are still biodiverse on, on the planet are indigenous territory, something like that. This link between cultural diversity and biodiversity is super important and it's not lost on indigenous people like indigenous knowledge. This is what it comes down to indigenous knowledge, the knowledge that indigenous people have which is about sustainably living on the planet. This is why indigenous peoples continue to survive because they fundamentally, fundamentally built into their cultures are principles that are sustainable. And so um, that's the knowledge that the world needs right now. And they know that, and they have been organizing that organizing around this, um, you know, even before we had this term sustainability and this international organizing, uh, you know, of transnational indigenous people coming together in the international arena has been going on since at least the 1970s. I'm also interested in this question of environmental justice as it relates to indigenous people being linked to both, you know, biodiversity, but also sovereignty, because I feel like sovereignty comes up every time we have these conversations about, you know, um, where a pipeline is going to go and who has the rights to, you know, talk about those things. But the issue of sovereignty seems, you know, being like, we're, we're talking about it more and more often as well. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that's really particular to the U S situation and probably Canada too, because indigenous nations with treaties between the nation states that we are within whose you know now boundaries we are within not through our own choice but having treaties is pretty unusual for indigenous peoples in the world so um, in New Zealand there is one treaty at the treaty of um, Waitangi that's one treaty that the Maori have with with the government of New Zealand and Certainly here we have treaties and that, that, that's an unusual situation. And 
um, because we have treaties that creates that legal relationship. It's the treaties are the mutual rec- the, the recognition of mutual sovereignty. And so even though in the U.S. it is a diminished form of sovereignty that comes as a result of the um, controlling, or we use this fancy term, hegemonic, the hegemonic relationship between the U.S., or we could say paternalistic relationship. The treaties, when our ancestors negotiated these treaties, they did not agree to give up their sovereignty to a supreme, a higher sovereign. That wasn't part of the deal. Um, but because of Supreme Court actions beginning in 1823 and then a whole cacophony of legislation and other legal trappings, you know, our sovereignty gets diminished to what they call, you know, nowadays quasi-sovereignty or limited sovereignty. But so we're still always fighting to protect even that, like even whatever limited sovereignty we have, even though it's not the sovereignty that we negotiated for, right? We're still always trying to protect that. So, um, so yeah, you know, when you're talking about like with Standing Rock, well, one of the reasons it was such an issue is because it came, the pipeline came so close to the boundary of the reservation, but it was well within the original treaty boundaries. And that meant that they had to be consulted by law. They had to consult with, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Well, so it turns out that that didn't happen. They knew it. Everybody knew that 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 was the case, that they didn't actually adequately consult the tribe. And and yet Energy Transfer Partners, along with the Army Corps of Engineers, go ahead and grant these this incremental permitting technique, which allows them to evade a complete environmental assessment which is why they did it that way. So, um, so yeah, in the end, it came down to the reality that there was no meaningful consultation with the tribe as required by law. So this might be kind of off topic or right where we need to be, um, but I'm really interested in your study of critical sports studies and how that might connect to indigenous history So yeah, how does critical sports studies connect to environmental justice and indigenous history? Well, it connects in a really, in a pretty direct way. And and it's really because of my move to San Clemente that I was talking about earlier. Um, And uh, this this, uh, master's uh, thesis research project that I was doing, um, which was very place-based because I was living in San Clemente in the interest of doing place-based research, I got wind of this thing that had just happened, like just a few years before this long battle to prevent the building of a toll road in the town in San Clemente. If it was going to be built, the its trajectory was going to run through this ecosystem that is a, a watershed that's considered the most pristine watershed left in Southern California. This watershed is a creek called the San Mateo Creek, and San Mateo Creek runs out. It, it empties out into the ocean at this place called Trestles, one of the most important coveted surf sites in the world, right? Not just in, even in California, but in the world. And um, people come from all over the world to surf this break. 
And the building of this toll road was likely going to ruin the wave quality, according to the environmental impact studies. And so coincidentally, that land, this watershed that it was running through, is a, is the site of an, uh, an ancient Ahashiman village and now a sacred site. But it's located on what is now a military base, Camp Pendleton, also land that is leased by the state parks. And so it's a campground. So it's this very complicated tangle of jurisdictions, which made it a very interesting site to study, especially given the fact that the tribe is not federally recognized. They have very uh, almost no legal rights. And so in their, in the interest of fighting to protect this sacred site, which there's also burials out there, they had to be strategic about how they fought to protect the site and what it meant was fighting in coalition with other stakeholders, meaning the surf community and the environmental community. So all of these, these very diverse interests came together. And that's what was so interesting to me. And so that's what I studied as somebody who is already a surfer and uh, as a native person. It was just so, so unusual. And, um, and it's also part of a personal ethic that I have about being responsible to the native community within whose land I live in. So that was, that was a huge piece of it for me, but, but yeah. And so it, that opened the door to doing research around surfing because I had started surfing like in 1980, a long time ago, I always identified it as, as a surfer, especially since I grew up in Southern California. I stopped surfing after sometime in the eighties, after I moved to Northern California and the water's really cold there. And I was like, not interested. So I didn't surf for like 25 years. And then I came back to Southern California when I moved to, to San Clemente and I started surfing again. And so so like all these like really seemingly like disparate, really diverse kind of interests were all converging for me at one time. And I just, I saw in the 25 years that I was out of the surf world, how, how extremely dramatic it had changed. It had really undergone massive changes since, um, since I was in it. At the same time, what was happening was that there was this emerging um, scholarship that was being called critical surf studies and people were doing like really serious research and scholarship helping to reframe like for one thing reframe the historical narratives about surfing and how it comes to be because surfing's an indigenous sport surfing comes out of native hawaii and there's this whole very interesting history but the history was written mostly by white men beginning a century ago. And it turns out that the way that they wrote it was extremely skewed. It was incorrect. It was really biased and it was really white supremacist. And so part of the, part of the project for these critical surf scholars is to correct the histories and then to contextualize them within other social processes. So so that was fascinating to me. And, and I mean, there's, you know, you know, like correcting the surf histories, because one of the things 
that that happened with it was that it was initially the the first surf surf um, historians were white male journalists in Hawaii. We're talking about Alexander Hume Ford and Jack London, the, the famous you know literary icon. They narrated this history of surfing as a dying sport that the Hawaiians neglected, but they completely did not even consider like the historical context of what was happening in Hawaii at the time with the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom government and the, the decline of the native Hawaiian population due to foreign diseases. So what they did was they narrated a sport that they saved from its certain demise. So white men saved the sport of surfing from native Hawaiians who neglected it. That's literally how Jack London wrote about it. And so, um, so that has to get corrected. And so the scholar scholarship has, you know, corrected that history, fortunately. But then there's the whole matter of like what happens when surfing gets imported to California. And so something really similar happens. And the way that it's been write, written by these young white male journalists is, you know, completely decontextualized from what has actually happened in California, um, especially since the importation of surfing in 1907 happens on the heels of this profoundly violent genocide, which becomes the foregrounding and the condition of possibility for surfing to even become implanted in the land here. So this is what I'm interested in, like, you know, contextualizing how it is here. And then that opened up to a whole other world of things of ways to write about it. And I'm finding all these native people that are surfers, all these American Indian people. And there's an organization called intertribal youth and native like water. That's a youth program that takes native youth culturally based program. That's uh, with a focus on wellness and, um, and it's a residential program that starts as a 11 day program at the University of California, San Diego. And one of the things that they do is they teach native youth how to serve while they're connecting to their culture. Because a lot of these are Kumeyaay kids who are indigenous to the coastline in San Diego. So, so, so much interesting stuff and going on and was just like, oh, we need to keep talking about this and, you know, keep, keep doing the scholarship. And now it's just growing so much. In fact, I just this morning, I was working on this chapter for a new book. There's this new book coming out of University of Washington Press um, on surfing and indigeneity. So it's like an American Indian, for <laughs> a, a whole book on American Indian perspectives on surfing, like whoever, I never in my wildest dreams would I ever have thought something like that could happen. I'm also really fascinated by, you know, the intersection of sports studies, critical sports studies or leisure and, you know, conversations about public land, much of which was confiscated illegally from indigenous communities. You know, whether that sport is surfing or skiing or hiking trails, there is this interesting intersection. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by that, you know, in the direction that that sort of work is going. Yeah, so that it's actually been coming up a lot. I mean, this this conversation about public lands is really super like it's just so 
visible right now. I keep being asked about this. And yeah, and it's true. Um, you know, public lands are 48% of all the public, of all the land in the Western United States is, you know, it's quote unquote public land. That's almost half. So half of the land on the continent in the Western 11 states is public land owned by the federal government. That land was all taken from indigenous people, you know, and certainly illegitimately and most of it illegally. Owing to this history of the Dawes Act and the allotment policies where they did this you know, 90 million acre land grab of treaty reserved lands. So, you know, that's a big conversation there. And, and now come to find out that, you know, so they take all this land, you know, open it up and make public like national forests and national parks. And they impose this new kind of land management regime on it. Uh, that involved, you know, allowing the forest to grow wild and not tending the land in the ways that Native people had tended it. And so now that the land's not being tended, what we have are all these forests that have grown wild, no more cultural burning leading up to this, these conditions that we have now, especially in California but not just in California and Washington, all, you know, lots of other places too, where these wildfires are out of control now because indigenous land management practices have become illegal. Now they're starting to figure it out and they're starting to um, reintegrate indigenous, um, you know, prescribed burns in various places with native people um, doing it. So you know, that, that raises questions about how these public lands are being managed and by who. And then in the context of the land back movement, that's a, another whole conversation. So to conclude, I have noticed that these conversations about land back, what to do with public lands, indigenous sovereignty, uh, the relationships between state federal governments with indigenous governments seem to be happening more frequently, at least, you know, more people are aware of them, um, but we're nowhere near like where we need to be. So, and at least in my own work, I've seen that, you know, a huge part of protest movements is, you know, our past and our present, but also how we imagine our futures to be and what we expect from our future. So I guess that's where this question is coming from. What do you hope to see in the future as it relates to um, Indigenous environmental justice um, and Indigenous peoples generally? You know, there's there's a lot of ways to answer that question. For sure, what has to happen, for one thing, is you know, we have to reframe environmental justice policy and law regimes to incorporate these larger histories, to incorporate the political difference of Native people and their very different relationships to land, and to actually, you know, stand by this concept of free prior and informed consent. Like, go beyond consultation. So we, we already talked about Standing Rock happened because there wasn't adequate consultation. But even if there had been co adequate consultation, however we define that, the outcome would have been the same. Standing Rock would have said no. They would have said absolutely in no uncertain terms, we don't agree to this pipeline. But there would be absolutely no 
legal recourse for them. The pipeline would, you know, we could speculate about what would have happened, but just having them say their opinion about it wouldn't have guaranteed anything. And so, but on the other hand, we have this thing called the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that the United States signed on to in 2010, which um, enshrines the right to free prior and informed consent. But there doesn't seem to be any real serious commitment to actually abiding by that. So that's something that we need to keep holding the federal government to. And that's one of the things I think we'll be seeing more and more of is the demand to actually really abide by this concept. So there's that. And then there's the matter of land back and, you know, justice and what does justice mean? And if we're looking at it through a lens of decolonization, ultimately it's got to, it can mean a lot of different ways, but it ultimately will mean restoring lands to native peoples in all these various ways that we can imagine that, whether it be through, you know, land trusts, through conservation easements, through co-management agreements, and just giving the land back. So in the last two years, we've seen to my calculations, and it could be even more, there's been 40,000 acres of public lands given back to tribes since 2018. So 32,000 acres was given back to tribes in Oregon. And then just last month, another 19,000 acres of the National Bison Range were returned to the control of the Kootenai Salish, CKST in, in Montana. That's really interesting. And I know that there are other instances of private lands being returned to Native people too. So this is something that I I have called the colonial unspeakable. Like it's, you know, when you talk about justice for Native people, like it's been unthinkable and unspeakable to say, give the land back. But now we're saying it and that that has to be on the table for, for justice for Native people among a whole host of other things, but that's, that's a huge piece of it. So that's, that's what I'm, how I'm thinking about. That's how native people are talking about it these days. Like not just not mincing any words about what we mean when we say justice. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here. I've really appreciated this conversation and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Um, and thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to hear more from Professor Gilia Whitaker, we will have links to resources on our website and you can also catch her at the Institute for Historical Studies this week. If you haven't already, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 15 Minute History and like and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's it. And thank you again for joining us. Fifteen Minute History is produced at the University of Texas at Austin in partnership with Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media and visit our website for more information and resources. See y'all next week.